right, it's good to see all of you here today at Grace Church. And uh, like Jordan said, whether you are in the room or whether you're joining us online, so glad you're able to be together with us. And uh, we are actually in the fifth week now. This is week five of this series we've been in that's called God Is. And so if you are someone who's just joining us for the first time or maybe you missed the past few weeks, we're so glad that you're here and welcome to the conversation. Uh, But if I could just kind of briefly summarize what it is that we've been doing in this series, uh, what we're doing is uh, we're actually looking together. We're actually picking apart and looking together at um, what we said is maybe one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. And, uh, and so we're actually spending six weeks looking at really just two verses and, and kind of digging at them together. The passage that I'm talking about is actually right here. It's in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And so I actually would love to invite you, even right now, just from the very beginning, why don't you grab your Bible, and why don't you return with me back to this passage that we've been looking at. So Exodus 34, and uh, if you are in the room and you need to use a Bible, page 62 in the Bibles under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to take a Bible. So Exodus 34, this is the passage that we're looking at. Like we said, it's just a couple verses, and um, but we said this is maybe one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, and the reason for that is because here in these two verses, what we find is we actually see the first place, and uh, quite honestly, the only place in all of the Bible where we see God himself audibly speaking, and he says, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. And so in a lot of ways, this passage is kind of God's disclosure of himself to the world. This is him saying, this is who I am. It's him saying who he is in two two verses. And so we said, because of that, this is a really important passage. Uh, A lot of us have maybe different ideas and have different opinions on who we think God is and what we think God is like. But here we're saying this is actually God himself speaking and saying in his own words, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. And so because of that, this passage is really important, and, it, and we, we actually discovered over the past few weeks, this passage is actually the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. And so sometimes the biblical authors will quote each other. Sometimes they'll reference each other. And we said that this passage right here is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. So whenever the biblical authors are trying to explain God, whenever they're trying to make sense of who God is, or when they're trying to navigate through uh, understanding who he is, they're going to circle back to this passage over and over again. Because again, this is God's disclosure of himself to the world. And so we actually said this passage is so important, we encourage some of you to memorize this. And so I know that there's some of you, and hopefully you're, you're, you're someone who's actually took, taken me up on that challenge. It's only two verses, and I've also been working on it. I'm getting there. I'm not quite 100% there yet, but, uh, but still working on it. And the other thing we've been doing in this series, as we've been looking at these two verses, and this is something, just to tell you, we don't do this every week at Grace. This has been just something that we've been doing that's been unique to this series, is we've actually been asking that all of us would say this out loud at the beginning of each message in this series. So I'd like to do that again, and I'd like to invite you, if you would, to maybe say these verses out loud with me. So a little class participation, and, uh, and we'll just say Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 together. Are you guys ready for that? Okay, I'll lead us in it. So here we go. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. 
And so there it is. We said, this is it. This is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. This is God in his own words in two verses telling us what he is like. And so because it's so important, what we've been doing in this series is we've just been taking it phrase by phrase. And each week, we've been digging in and we've been focusing on what does it mean when God says these things about himself. And so the first week, we talked about the Lord, the Lord. We, we actually talked about why it's so important that God starts there, that when God describes himself, he begins by saying the Lord, the Lord. Then we talked about how he's compassionate and gracious in, in the next week. And then last week, if you were here, we talked about how God is slow to anger, how God is long of nostrils. You might remember that if you were here. If you missed that, you might want to go back and check it out. But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in. We're going to talk about this aspect of God. The Bible's going to say, God is going to say about himself that he is abounding in love and he is abounding in faithfulness. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. So that's what we're going to really think about here this week together. What does it mean that when God uh, kind of reveals himself and explains himself, that among the characteristics that he lists, he's going to say that he is abounding he is abounding, that he is overflowing, that he is teeming with love and faithfulness. What does he mean when he says that? And so hopefully by the time that we're done with this talk today, you'll have a good picture in your mind of what God means when he actually says this about himself, that he's abounding in love and in faithfulness. I think for us to understand what God's getting at when he says this, we actually have to focus in on one specific word. There's one word in here that I think needs to be clarified for us to really understand what God is saying about himself. And it's actually this word right here. It's this word love. It's the word love. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think as all of us know, in our culture today, the word love is, is very broad. We use it in such a broad sense that when you say that you love something or when we use the word love, it has a wide range of meanings. It can mean a bunch of different things. So if you, just for example, if you were to go to like dictionary.com or, or any online dictionary for that matter, you would find that the, the different usages of love would include things like this, right? So when we say love, sometimes what we mean is intense affection. That basically it's an intense feeling of affection for something or someone. And so we'll, we'll use the word love for that. When we say love, we also use that in, in a way to talk about sexual attraction, so we talk about romantic love, that you fell in love, or whatever that, we might say it's something like that. Love also is personal attachments. Someone might say, uh, they might say something like, football's always been my first love, or something like that, right? And that's, they're talking about an attachment that they have. Uh, we also use it to talk about strong liking. If you like something strongly, we'll say that we love it. So I'll, I, I tell you, I love, I love pizza, right? I love chicken wings. So what do I mean? I don't mean I love it like that. I mean, I love it like this. That's how I love it. And it's a different term, right? Uh, love is also means scoreless in tennis. That's one of the ways that we use it. And so I think the question becomes, okay, there's all these different ideas of love. When God says, when God says, and he reveals about himself, that he's abounding in love, he's overflowing with love, which love are we talking about exactly? What do we mean by that? What does God mean when he, when he says that he's overflowing in love? And I don't know if this is true about you, but maybe I can just speak for myself. I know for me, at first glance when I read this, what I tend to think is I tend to think that this means that God has strong feelings of affection and warm emotions towards us. That's how I tend to read it. I think maybe a lot of us might feel that way, that when it says God is abounding in love, it means that God, God likes us and he, he's got warm emotions towards us. And um, let me just say for the record, I actually think that's true. I think God does like us, and I think God does have warm emotions towards us. 
But I don't think that's what this is saying. I think that's what we talked about two weeks ago. We talked about God as compassionate. Some of you might remember the word compassion is a very emotional word that carries with it the idea of affection. And I think that's more the idea, but I don't think that's what this is saying. So what is this saying when it says that God is abounding in, is abounding in love? Well, to make matters more interesting, some of you actually might have different translations of the Bible. So if you have a different translation, you'll actually notice that the different English translations translate this word differently. And just to give you an example, so for example, the word love, if you have the English standard version of the Bible, which by the way is a great translation of the Bible, it's gonna say steadfast love. So it doesn't just say love, it says steadfast love. The New American Standard Bible, which is also a great translation, is gonna say loving kindness, uses that word, the New English translation says loyal love. The New Living translation says unfailing love. So you notice they're similar. They're similar, but they're all translating it a little differently. They're, they're trying to find uh, words in the English language to help communicate something. Now, let me just give you a quick hint. Okay, so if you're new to the Bible or if you're kind of just started reading through the Bible, this is a little hint. This was so helpful to me when I first started reading the Bible. Hopefully it's helpful to you that whenever you're reading the Bible and you have multiple translations, if you have different English translations, and you notice that they, that they, define, they use different words for different things in, in translations, that's always a good indicator to you that there's something more going on in the original language. Because what they're, what they're doing is they're trying to take, in this case, a Hebrew word, and they're trying to import it into the English language, and there's really no English equivalent and so they're all trying their best to describe in the English language what, what is actually a Hebrew, which is actually a Hebrew concept. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's actually exactly what's happening. And the word that's being used here, so I'm going to tell you what it is in the Hebrew. So just a tiny bit of Hebrew this morning. I promise not much more than that. <laughs> tiny bit of Hebrew. It's actually this word right here. So check it out and get it. This is actually pronounced chesed is how it's pronounced. So it's not pronounced cheesed like some of you might think. <laughs> Like, God doesn't cheese us, okay? The word there is chesed. It's chesed. And you got to get your throat involved because it's Hebrew. So I know you, I know you want to give it a shot. So go ahead and say it. Wear your mask so no one gets COVID. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. Just go ahead and give it a shot. Say chesed, chesed. Okay, yeah, it's a hard CH sound, like, like in Bach, right? That kind of thing. So chesed. And, and what I want to show you here today is this word. This is a really cool word. It's a really, in fact, if you don't know any other Hebrew word, this might be the one that's worth knowing. And the reason is because this word is actually used more often of God's love than any other word in the Bible. And so 250 times in the Old Testament, you're going to see this word show up. And most of those times, it is referring to the love that God has for us. It's this idea, chesed, chesed. And like I mentioned a moment ago, there is no English equivalent to this word. We don't have one. In, in our entire dictionary, we don't have an equivalent to what the Hebrew idea of chesed is. And yet the Bible is going to say that this is the love that God is abounding in. This is the kind of love that God is overflowing in. So this is a really, really, really cool word. In fact, if you're a person who's looking to get a tattoo and you're like looking for a cool Bible word to get tattooed, might I suggest chesed? It's a good one to get in there. There may or may not be someone on our staff who has chesed tattooed to their arm and uh, I'll let you guess who it is. It's not me, but I'll let you guess who it is. So chesed, all right. So what is chesed? Well, the reason it's so, it's so complicated to translate is because there's no English equivalent. And the reason there's no English equivalent is because chesed it actually combines three different concepts into one. 
And what are they? All right, well, here you go. Just think about it this way. So here's a, a Venn diagram to help us out. Chesed combines, first off, the idea of affection. So a lot of us, when we think of love, we think of affection. We think of strong emotions, uh, a warm affection for a person. And chesed includes that. So it's not, it's not just that, but it does include that. But not just that. It also combines the idea of commitment. And so whenever you see chesed, it always is combined with this idea of an obligation or a commitment or a promise or to use a Bible word, a covenant. And so there is a contractual aspect to this, but there's also a relational aspect to it as well. But there's also a third dimension to chesed, and the third dimension is actually action, action. So it is um, concrete acts that accompany love and accompany a commitment. And so if you take any of these out, you don't have chesed, you miss, you miss it. But if you have these three things together and you combine them, then that right there is what the Bible is going to call chesed. And, and so it's this amazing, one-of-a-kind word. And the Bible is going to say that God, this is the kind of love that God is overflowing with. That, In other words, um, you really can't understand God's love apart from understanding chesed. Like you just can't. This is, this is the term the Bible uses the most to describe the way that God loves us. Now, that might all sound very conceptual, and some of you might be thinking, okay, that makes sense, I think. But let me see if I can give you maybe a more concrete example of chesed. Probably the best illustration I ever heard on this uh, comes from a guy named Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey, some of you might know him. He actually is uh, popular, made popular because of this thing called the Bible Project. And the Bible Project, by the way, is so good. It's just these uh, really helpful videos that help explain some of the complicated aspects of the Bible in very simple terms. It's awesome. If you're someone who's really looking to dive deeper into the scripture, I might recommend it. But Tim Mackey, I heard him uh, in a sermon one time give this analogy. He was talking about chesed. And he said, um, maybe, maybe the best way to think about it is imagine a scenario where you have a husband and wife who have been married for a very long time. So they're an elderly couple. And let's say they've been married for 50, 60 years, somewhere in there. And the wife comes to a place where her health begins to deteriorate. And so she is in need of full-time attention and care. So uh, she, she needs, she's in a wheelchair. She needs to, to be fed. She needs to be bathed. All of those things uh, need to be taken care of. So the husband takes it upon himself to become her full-time caregiver. And so he washes her and he bathes her and he cares for her and takes care of her in those ways. Now, if you can get that picture in your mind, that actually is a really good depiction of chesed. That's it. Because, because it's affection, it's love, um, but it's also actions. So he's physically doing things, acts of love. And while he's doing them, he's actually fulfilling a promise that he made. He's fulfilling, um, he's fulfilling his wedding vows as he's doing it. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, till death do us part. He's actually fulfilling that, that commitment. And, and you can see that what's interesting is, is if you take out any one of these elements, you don't have chesed. So if this husband said he loved his wife and he made a commitment to her, but then he just sat on the couch and didn't do anything, that's not chesed. That's not it. It's very centered on actions. There's actually acts of grace that accompany this commitment and this love. Or if this husband did those things because of an obligation, but he didn't want to and he didn't love his wife, well, that's not chesed either. He's basically just playing the role of a nurse. 
And so the three of these things that come together, that's where you get chesed. And I think if you can get your head around that, what you see is this is actually, this actually really is a very, very beautiful word. It's a beautiful word. And what it's describing to us is a love that we don't really have a word for in, our, in the English language. We just don't have a word for it. I think maybe the best analogy that we have in our culture, it probably is marriage. Marriage probably is the closest. But even that, I think a lot of us know, many marriages in the modern world, they don't reflect this kind of love. A lot of marriages are built on a contractual relationship. You do for me these things, and I'll do for you these things. And if you don't do those things for me, then I'm not going to do these things for you. That's not chesed. Chesed is the, uh, it's, a, it's a love that's based on a commitment, and it's a promise. It's based on a promise of faithfulness, and there's action. That's what chesed is. So the Bible's going to say, it talks about God's love. This is the kind of love that God is abounding in. It's this kind of love. And the biblical authors are going to come back to this over and over again, and they're going to say, this is the love that God has for us. So let me just see if I can make it super clear for us. And I just want to show you one other place in the Bible where we see this kind of love played out. And I think, I honestly think that this might be very, very helpful for us to understand what God says about this love, about this, this chesed love. So the passage I want to take, take you to is actually right here. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you and invite you, if you would just flip over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're just briefly going to look at this passage. And in this passage that we're going to look at together, I think what we have is maybe one of the clearest and one of the most profound examples of what chesed is and what it looks like. And my hope is that after looking at this, you'll have a better idea. You and I will have a better idea of the kind of love that is available to us and that God has for us, all right? So 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to go. Now, before we start reading this, I have to give you a little bit of context. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So let me just give you a little bit of context to what's going on. So the story that we're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is actually the story about a guy named King David. And so if you are uh, not, not real familiar with the Bible, King David actually was probably the most famous king in all of Israel's history. He was uh, an incredible leader. And on top of that, he also loved God a whole lot. And when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, you're going to see that in a lot of ways, David's like at the pinnacle of his power. And so David in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is king. He's on the throne of Israel. He has experienced military success on all sides. So David is victorious. Uh, he has all power, all authority. He has incredible wealth. And so we're going to find David here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, kind of at the peak, at the pinnacle of his, of his career as, as a king. But you got to understand it wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that. In fact, we're told in the book of 1 Samuel, which comes before this, that there was another king who lived before David. And his name, some of you might know this, the king that came before David was a guy named Saul. Now, if you don't know Saul, Saul was also a very powerful king, but he was, he was also very, very paranoid. And so he was a paranoid king, and specifically, he was jealous and paranoid of David. And so all throughout the book of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul continually tries to hunt down and kill David. He's always trying to kill him. So David basically spends his life on the run, running from King Saul, who's continually trying to kill him. So Saul is really David's enemy. He just keeps trying to kill him. Now, what's interesting is the Bible tells us that Saul, King Saul, had a son. And his, son, his son's name was, this guy, was, was, uh, was Jonathan. And so Jonathan, even though he was King Saul's son, he was more committed to David. 
So Jonathan and David were like best buddies. They were like bros. And these guys, they loved each other like brothers. They were loyal to each other. And even though Jonathan was Saul's son, his commitment, it was really ultimately to David. And so we're actually told on a couple different occasions, Jonathan actually saved David's life from Saul, from his father Saul, killing him. So on one occasion, this is gonna sound really weird to you and I, but you'll see why this is important here in a second. On one occasion, Jonathan saves David's life and then he makes this request of David. And I wanna show it to you real quick. And it's actually in 1 Samuel chapter 20. You don't have to turn there, but I'll put the verses on the screen. Here's what Jonathan says after he saves David's life. He says, I want you to show me unfailing kindness. Now the word kindness there is actually the word chesed, it's that. So he says, I want you to show me unfailing chesed, like the Lord's kindness, chesed. So notice, I want you to notice the kind of love that Jonathan is asking David to show him is a love that originates in, and it's a love that's reflective of the love that God has for us, chesed. As long as I live so that I might not be killed. And do not ever cut off your chesed, your kindness from my family. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Now, again, this might sound really weird to us, but I want you to just notice in this passage, I want you to notice three things. So notice here that Jonathan, Jonathan asked David to make a promise. He asked him to make a commitment. He asked him to make a covenant. He says, let's make a covenant. Let's make an oath with each other. So there's a commitment. You see that, right? But then notice this commitment is based out of love. So he says, I want you to make a commitment, an oath out of your love because he loved him as he loved himself. And so you have, in this, you have commitment, you have affection, but then notice you also have action. He says, I want you to be kind. I want you to show kindness to my family. He basically says to him, I want you to take care of my family and I want you to treat them nicely. I want you to treat them well. Treat them with chesed, act nicely towards my family. And these three things together, this commitment and this, this affection and, this, and, and then this, this, this action together, he calls chesed. That's what chesed is. So here's what happens. The Bible's gonna tell us that Jonathan and Saul eventually are in battle and they both die. They both tragically die. So years later, Jonathan and Saul die. The Bible tells us that David then becomes king and he rises to the throne. And the Bible tells us that in 2 Samuel chapter nine, David has incredible success. He has military success on all sides. And this is where we pick it up. So check this out. 2 Samuel chapter nine, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, chesed, for Jonathan's sake. So, so remember, at this point, Jonathan's dead now. Jonathan's gone. He's been gone for years. And David, now that he's at the pinnacle of his power, he remembers. He remembers that he made a promise to Jonathan. And so he says, is there anybody, is there anyone who remains that's of Saul's descendants that I can show kindness to, that I can show chesed to? So he finds this dude named Ziba, Look at this. He says, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba and they summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service, he replied. So he said, yeah. Then David said to him, the king said, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show, now notice this, to whom I can show God's kindness? The word there is chesed. Now again, this is important because this is a, this is a clue to us that what's about to happen in this passage It's a reflection of, and it's a picture of the kind of love that God has for us. This is God's 
chesed. So I just want you to know that what we're about to read is a picture. It's a picture to us of the kind of love that God has for us. So he says, is there anyone left? So Ziba says, there's still one guy left, still one guy. There's still a son of Jonathan, and he's lame in both of his feet. So we're actually going to find out here in a moment that what he's referring to is David had, or Jonathan had one son, and he was a guy who, we're going to find out in a second, his name was Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. And it's a really fun name to say, and I know you want to try it. So turn to the person next to you and say Mephibosheth. Go ahead and give it a shot. Mephibosheth. Yeah, there you go. So Mephibosheth. Now, we actually know a little bit about this guy. And the reason we know a little bit is because he's mentioned back in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Here's what we know about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was five years old when his father Jonathan would have died in battle. So he was only five when his father died. And it was at that same time that the Bible tells us that he had an accident and he was crippled in both of his legs. And so Mephibosheth was, was lame in both of his legs. He would, have been, he would have been crippled and he would have lost his father when he was five. In fact, the name Mephibosheth, uh, if you're thinking of baby names, by the way, if you're looking for baby names, I wouldn't suggest Mephibosheth. And the reason is because it literally means son of shame. That's what it means. So it was kind of this, 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 this uh, sort of this negative name that he was given after this event took place in his life. So David says, is there anyone left? And they said, well, the only one that's left is, is Mephibi. I don't know. I said, oh, Mephibosheth. And so David said, um, well, where is he? He asked him. And then Ziba answered him. He's at the house of Mekur, son of Amiel in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Mekur, son of Amiel. So he basically said, go get him. So he went and got him. And then look at this. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. So he bows down to, to David. And then David said, Mephibosheth, which there's an exclamation point there. So I don't know. Mephibosheth, I don't know how he said it exactly. And he said, at your service, he replied. He replied to him. And then check this out. David said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For I will surely show you chesed, I'm going to show you kindness, I'm going to show you love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So this is pretty cool. God looks at this guy, or David looks at this guy, he's never met him before. And he says, Mephibosheth, he says, don't be scared. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you the love that God has. I'm going to show you chesed. And so I'm going to give you land, the land that belonged to your father and his father. And I'm going to have you eat at my table, at my table, all the days of my, all the days of your life. And look at, I love this. Look at Mephibosheth's response. This is very important. What he does. Mephibosheth bowed down. He bowed down. Now the word there literally means he prostrated himself. And then he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I just want you to notice a couple things, point out a few things. I want you to notice that Mephibosheth, when he goes into the presence of King David, he prostrates himself. He says about himself this degrading thing. He says, I'm a dead dog. Who, who, who am I? I'm a dead dog that you would treat me this way. And the first thing that David said when he saw Mephibosheth is he said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, why is that? Why, why, why would all this be in here? Well, here's why, okay? And all commentators agree about this, that the reason that Mephibosheth would have been scared and the reason he would have called himself a dead dog is because he would have been certain. And by the way, everyone else who would have been watching would have been certain that the reason that David had Mephibosheth brought to him was because he was going to kill Mephibosheth. 
Everyone thought that. Mephibosheth would have thought that. That's why he called himself a dead dog. All those who were watching would have thought that. And here's why. So back in this time, it was actually a really common procedure that when there was a new dynasty that came into the kingdom, whenever there was, whenever there was a new regime that entered in, that the first order of affairs was that they would purge the land of all of their enemies. And so they basically would kill anyone who is their enemy and anyone who is within the family of their enemy. It was a way of having security on the throne. And so that would have been very normal for them. And remember, Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul, Saul who spent his life trying to chase after and kill David. And so when David says, go find, this, go find any living ancestor of Saul and bring them to me, and they do that, everyone would have been like, he's gonna kill him. He's gonna kill him. And Mephibosheth thought that. But David, in turn, said, no, I'm not going to kill you. I want to show you chesed. So look what happens after this. The Bible says, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat in my table. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth, this is so cool. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And here you have this really, really cool story where the Bible tells us, gives us a picture of what Chesed looks like. Here is Mephibosheth, who was David's enemy, who's now being treated as one of his family. Here's Mephibosheth, who didn't earn or didn't deserve any of what was received to him. But because of a promise that was made to Jonathan, he, he was the beneficiary of such an incredible love. It's a picture, it's a picture, the Bible's gonna tell us, of chesed. It's a commitment, a commitment that was made to Jonathan out of love and affection that showed up in tangible action. And there's nothing that Mephibosheth could have done to deserve this. He didn't earn this. He didn't perform his way to this. He was simply the recipient of this incredible act of love that was demonstrated to him. And the Bible is going to tell us that this is the kind of love that God is abounding in. This is the kind of love that God is overflowing with. It's this idea that we see here, it's chesed. And I think the Bible is gonna tell us that we cannot understand God's love without understanding this kind of love, chesed love. It's hard to define. Uh, I, I know that there's different authors who have tried to give a good definition. I'll just give you a couple that I thought were helpful. Michael Card, he's a musician. He's also a really awesome Bible student. He actually wrote a book on chesed, and it's called Inexpressible. And here was his definition. That was good. He said, chesed is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. I thought that was really good. It's when the person who I have the right to expect nothing just gives me everything, lavishes or maybe my favorite, this comes from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, I don't know if, if you guys have this for your kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't, you need to get it. It's awesome. If you don't have kids, you need to get it. This thing's awesome. I mean, I, 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 this might sound bad. I, I read it by myself sometimes. It's so good. It's so good. And on every page of this Bible, they say the same thing over and over again about God's love. And here's, here's what they say. They say, God loves us with a never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And what is it they're trying to define? They're trying to define chesed. This is, this is the kind of love that God has for us. And so let me, let me just say, if it hasn't been made already clear, 
let me just kind of close out our time by connecting a few dots. So let me just connect some dots and then, and then we'll be done, all right? So first off, in the story, we saw that David's chesed was based on a loving promise. I don't think it's by any coincidence that the Bible is going to tell us that this is the way that God's love is because the Bible is going to tell us that God's chesed is also based on a loving promise. You know, in the story, we see that David made a promise to Jonathan and it was because of that promise that he made to Jonathan that he extended chesed to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't perform his way to it. He was just the recipient of this incredible act of grace. I want you to understand that the Bible is going to say that is exactly the same case. That's how God loves us. It's hard to understand the love of God without understanding the concept of a promise. The Bible's gonna talk this way from beginning to end. And so all the way back in Genesis, the Bible's gonna tell us that God made a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And then through you, I'm gonna bless all the nations. And the Bible tells us that God remains faithful to his promise. Even when God's people are faithless, God continues to treat his people, not according to their faithlessness, but according to the promise that he made to Abraham. And that promise endures. It goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, all through generations till you get to the New Testament. You get to the New Testament, Jesus shows up. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. And the Bible tells us that in Jesus Christ, God makes a, get this, a new covenant. He makes a new covenant. And whenever those of us who follow Jesus put our faith in Christ, whenever anyone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, that God is going to treat us according to the promises that he made to his son. And so we, we are not dealt with according to our faithlessness. We are not dealt with accordingly to our sin. We are dealt with according to the promise that God has made to his son, Jesus. The Bible is gonna say that in Jesus Christ, that we have the promise of eternal life. The Bible is gonna say that in Jesus Christ, that we have the promise of the forgiveness of sins. The Bible is gonna say that in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And all of those things are made available, not because of our faithfulness, not because of how good we are, not because we perform our way to those things. It's all because of the promise that God made to Jesus. When we put our faith in him, he will treat us according to his promise. The Bible is gonna tell us. It's an amazing reality and it brings security those of us who follow Christ. I think this is why in Romans chapter eight, it says this, the apostle Paul reflecting on this, he says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is gonna be able to separate us from the love that God has for us. That's in Christ Jesus. You see what he's saying? He's saying when, when you're in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, that means that, that there's nothing that's gonna separate you from the love that God has for you because God is going to treat you according to the promise that he made to his son. I think it's powerful. How about this one? David in this passage was eager to show chesed. And I love, one of my favorite things about this passage, I don't know if you noticed this, David was the one, he was the one who sought out Mephibosheth. He was the one who initiated this, this interaction with him. Mephibosheth didn't come find him. The Bible tells us Mephibosheth was in Lodabar, which what is Lodabar? I don't know, but it doesn't just sound like a bad place. Like Lod, it doesn't sound like if your standards are too high, just Lodabar, right? And go <laughs> live over there. It doesn't sound like a good place at all. Lod da David was the one who sought him out. He was eager to show grace. He was eager to show chesed. And I think that this is a picture of God. 
The Bible, listen, the Bible tells us God is abounding in this. He is overflowing in this kind of love. I think for some of us, we get this picture in our mind that God is reluctant to show us grace, that he's reluctant to show us kindness, that God is eager to be disappointed with us, that God is eager to be angry with us. And I'm just telling you, that's not true. The Bible says he's slow to anger. He's overflowing with chesed. And I think one of the most transforming things that can happen to us is that when we come to find that the God of the universe who has every right to treat us with with just harsh judgment, that instead it turns out he's just eager to give us more than we could ever ask or imagine. I think that'll change you. You begin to understand that, which leads to the next thing. David's chesed transformed Mephibosheth. It did in every way. It transformed him relationally. It transformed him legally. It transformed him positionally. It changed him. I think in the same way, when we experience God's chesed, it changes us. It changes us. You know, I don't think it's by any coincidence that Mephibosheth goes from being David's enemy to becoming part of David's family. He eats at his table, not just once, all the days of his life. I think it's not a coincidence that David comes in fearful of David, or Mephibosheth comes in fearful of David, but he ends up being assured, assured, that he has a place, that he has a land. I don't think that's any coincidence because the Bible's gonna tell us that that's our story. You guys know what the Bible says about us? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that each one of us in our sins, because of our sins, we're enemies of God. We're enemies. And yet God, in his grace and in his kindness, sent his son, and because of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done for us, he offers us the opportunity to be adopted as his children into his family. The Bible tells us that now that the fear of God is eliminated because of the grace that God has shown us in his chesed. That, I believe, will absolutely change and transform us. And the last thing I'll say is this. David showed chesed, and I'm convinced of this. David showed chesed, I believe, because David experienced God's chesed. So I think the whole reason David was eager to do this is because David was someone who had experienced this. And I'm convinced of that. You know, in this passage, you probably noticed in verse three, David even says this. He says, I wanna show someone God's chesed is what he says. And I I believe David was someone who himself had been transformed by this. In fact, uh, I told you at the beginning of this message that this word chesed shows up 250 times in the Old Testament. But what I didn't tell you is, did you know 127 of those times show up in the Psalms? In the Psalms. And who wrote most of the Psalms? Does anyone know? David 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 was obsessed with the love of God. He was totally transformed by it. He sung about it. He wrote about it. He wrote wrote poems about it. He was constantly talking about how awesome God's love was. And so because he was so transformed by it, I believe the Bible tells us that he was eager to show it to others. Now, let me just say, for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know that's not everyone in this room or everyone who's watching, but for those of us who follow Jesus, I think there's something in there for us. Now, I think it's, 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 it's not just that we should embrace and understand God's chesed. I think the Bible says that God's chesed is fully worked out when it begins to work itself, not just in us, but through us. When we start to become conduits of the same kind of love that God has for us. You know, the Bible's gonna tell us that we should love one another, that we should love. But I think the question is, what kind of love should we show to each other? Should we show, should we have, does that mean we should have warm feelings of emotions for each other? Is that what the Bible means when it says we should love each other? 
The Bible says we love each other. Does that mean we should tolerate each other no matter what the cost is? Is that what it means to love each other? And the Bible's gonna say the way we are called, for those of us who follow Jesus, the way we're called to love each other is we're called to love each other the way God loves us. We look at his love. And how does he love us? He loves us with chesed. It's a faithful love. It's a committed love. It's not a flaky love, not at all. It's a love that, that says, I won't quit even when you do. This is the kind of love that God is calling us into. And you guys, I think that has incredible implications for us. I think it has incredible implications for those of us who follow Jesus in our marriage. The Bible says that marriage, our marriage is supposed to be a reflection of God's chesed, his love. And so what does that say about the, the kind of commitment, the kind of faithfulness that we're called into in that relationship? What does that say about the kind of commitments that we have to each other? For those of us who follow Jesus, the Bible says that we should be committed to showing each other the love that God has, that we should love each other with that same love in our life groups, in our church, in our community. What does that say to us? What does that tell us? What does that tell us about the commitments that we make? about how we follow through with things. I think, I think it says so much about, not that we're gonna get this perfect, but I think that it's something that we need to pursue in an ongoing way is this chesed. Um, John Mark Comer, he's, uh, he wrote the book, God Has a Name, which we've actually been quoting quite a bit in the series. And it's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. I love the way he put it. Uh, on, this, on this particular point, he said this. He said, as a generation, the idea of faithfulness is alien and strange. Our grandparents knew a thing or two about it, but not us. The average stay in a marriage is about eight years. My grandparents were married for 60. The average stay in a job is four years, and that drops every year. He says, faithfulness has become like disco. It used to be cool, and a few people still do it, but for the most part, it's a thing of the past. And here's the problem with that. The best things in life are the result of faithfulness, usually years, if not decades of faithfulness. Faithfulness, I love the way he says this, is long obedience in the same direction in an age of instant gratification. He goes on, he says, when life gets hard, so many of us just bail. When it's no longer easy or fun or novel, when it gets difficult or uncomfortable or boring, we just leave. We leave jobs, we leave cities, we leave churches, we leave friendships, we leave marriages. We just cut ties and we move on. We're a generation raised on text messaging, making flakiness easier than ever before. And then he says this. He says, but God's not like that. God's not like that. God's faithful. God is faithful. And I thank God that he's not like that. God's love endures. And he is faithful even to the point of self-sacrifice, even to the point of sacrificing his son on the cross. He's committed. And I think that that instructs us. I think it tells us not just something about God's love, but also the kind of love we're to pursue. We're to pursue in our relationships with each other, that we're to pursue in, in our relationship with God, that we're to pursue in our marriages and in our friendships. It's, it's different quality of love. And I believe that when we are committed to showing this kind of love, not perfectly, but increasingly, it sticks out, it stands out. It's like a light in a dark place. So I'm gonna have the band come up and I'll end with these just these two thoughts and we'll pray. And it's this. First off, if you're a person who who is here and you have never embraced the love that God has for you. And what I wanna just say to you, you know, maybe you're investigating Christ or maybe you're on a faith journey and you're still not what you really, you're not super sure what you still think about God. Can I just tell you that the love that I'm telling you about, the love that God says about himself is available to you. It is. He's abounding in this kind of love. 
If you've never received God's chesed, I would encourage you to do that today. I would encourage you to. And here's how. The Bible's gonna tell us that the way you become a recipient of this love, this, this chesed that God has for you, is that you enter into his covenant. And how do you do that? By placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Christ and when you turn to him, the Bible tells us that all the things that are promised to Jesus are now yours. The forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's all available to you today. If you never turned your life to Jesus, do it today. Talk to him today. Tell him that you wanna follow him. I think for those of us who follow Christ, it's probably worth just taking some time as we're singing and as we're worshiping just to thank God for his chesed, but also to think about what does it look like for me? What does it mean for me to show this kind of love in my marriage, in my relationships, in my workplace? What does it look like for me to show this kind of love, the love that God has for us, chesed? Let's pray together. Well, God, I do just wanna say thank you so much for your incredible love for us. And uh, thank you that you, as you revealed yourself to the world, that you, uh, that you have revealed to us, that you are abounding, that you are overflowing with, with chesed. And uh, God, there's nothing like it. Maybe, maybe the best word that we could say in the English language is just your grace. You've been so gracious to us. But thank you. Thank you that not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, that you have decided to, to show incredible love to us. And so God, I pray that that would, that would be something that we would come to know. We'd come to know this about you. I pray that we come to rely on this, rely on this love that you have for us, God, and help us to show it, to show it to those around us, to the world around us, in a world where this kind of love is very rare. I pray that we would be a group of people who not perfectly, but increasingly are defined by this kind of love. And so God, thanks for the way that you love us. Teach us and train us and equip us and transform us that we can love the way that you loved. We wanna ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.